I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, it's New Year's, and that means one thing, resolutions. Now, you may not know it, but many public radio listeners turn on the radio when they leave their house, so we have an unusually large canine listenership. (laughs) Due to that fact, and in honor of a visit tonight from Meryl Marco, author of What the Dogs Have Taught Me and and Walking in Circles Before Lying Down, we've asked... (laughs) We've asked our canine listeners to submit their resolutions for 2012, and here's what they sent in. Uh, Hi there, I'm Captain Ahab, Welsh Corgi. Uh, My resolution is to finally stop drinking from the guest bathroom toilet. Even though it has a much better tasting water uh, and a sweet, subtle insouciance my bowl water doesn't have, my owners say it's gross, so whatever. My name's Little Princess, I'm a toy collie, and I want to cut my naps down to 17 a day. I know, I know. (laughs) I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I've got a lot of toilet paper to shred, so I've got to step it up. (laughs) Yeah, I'm Bonnie, I'm a yellow lab, and uh, I'm going to stop sniffing crotches this year. Uh, I'm going cold crotch turkey. So, wow, that... That actually sounds really delicious. Damn it! Damn it! Uh, yeah, uh, I'm Sprinkles. Uh, I'm a Yorkie. And, uh, I will not pee on the carpet, or on the people, or when I'm happy, or sad, or sneeze, or am asleep. Uh, you know, I'm just not gonna pee on stuff so much. Oh, yeah. I forgot something. I will not bark at everything that passes by a house, uh, be they real or imagined. Oh, I... I will not torment the cat. I will not torment the cat. I will not torment the cat. Look, if the cat starts something, I'm going to finish it, okay? Uh, I'm just saying. I'm not starting nothing, but... I'm not going to beg for food. I may look longingly and with a lot of longing, but I won't beg. It's beneath me, supposedly. I will not stare. I will not stare. I will not stare. Expectantly for an hour. For For no reason. Much. much. I will not hump the stuffed elephant that I love. I will not do that anymore. Even though it is totally consensual. Look, look, look. Again, I can't help if the cat starts up with me, okay? I'm just prematurely defending myself here. And it's not 
not begging if I'm really hungry. I have a fast metabolism. I'm a little freaking dog, you know? I mean, I'm like a hummingbird. What, what? Yeah, yeah, I just humped the elephant. So what? It's not New Year's yet, okay? You know, uh, I would really like to get hugged more. I am very cute. Is that a resolution? I didn't put the cat in the dryer. Why would you even say that? Come on. I don't even have opposable thumbs. Besides, I've changed. It's that slobbering, mangy fool over there. Yeah, it's, it's... Tonight, poet Carl Adamschick, Emmy Award-winning writer Meryl Marco, and music from the Lonely Forest. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hallmeister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the amount of time it took Shel Silverstein to think of something for Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout to not take out. He writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show, and music from our house band, The Mutton Chops. Thanks, guys. Once again tonight, our house band is an all-star house band with Dave Jorgensen from Blind Pilot, Steve Berlin from Los Lobos, Jonathan Newsom, and the fabulous Jim Brunberg, our band leader for the night. Thanks, guys. So I mentioned earlier that we'd uh, have humorist Meryl Marco on the show with her book Calm, Cool, and Contentious. And we'll also hear poet Carl Adamschick waxing poetic on New Year's Eve, which is appropriate because uh, it's New Year's Eve tonight. And uh, some of you might be listening to this, say, in your car or on the way to the vets to get pieces of a plastic Santa removed from your Labrador stomach and thinking, this is the worst New Year's Eve ever. Well, in an attempt to make you feel better about yourself, I'm going to tell you the story of my worst New Year's Eve ever. Uh, It's a little bit of a story, so indulge me. Uh, I was in a band once. I was in a good band with a terrible name. We were called the Diddy Twisters. It was not my fault. Uh, We were a good band largely because our lead singer, Marie, sounded like the love child of Chrissy Hind and Tina Turner, which actually sounds like kind of an interesting Lifetime movie. And in addition to being a badass singer, Marie was also my pick-me-up-at-the-airport-listen-patiently-to-all-my-unending-neurotic-crap and list as my emergency contact when I'm not dating someone friend. And we were, we were playing in the gym at the Kennedy School. It's an old elementary school that had been turned into a hotel. And the gym was all decked out with tables and a bar. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think that you'd accidentally walked into a prom where all the students were alcoholics and had to repeat their senior year 15 times. <laughs> and I was glad that we'd agreed to play New Year's Eve because it gave me something to do because... I've not really dated much as a rule uh, because, as a rule, I hate people. So 
My New Year's Eves are generally not the grown-up proms they are for some. My favorite New Year's Eve ever was playing Dirty Scrabble with five drunken word nerds who almost came to fisticuffs over whether or not the word poon was acceptable. (laughs) Side note, it is. Additionally, I had been dumped a few months prior by a really attractive, sweet sociopath, and the breakup had led me to eat some things. And so as I was putting on my holiday bustier before the show, I noticed that the fancy silver hook and eye closures were straining a little harder than they used to to do their jobs. (laughs) And it didn't help that the other backup singer was a size two, and we often dressed alike. Her bustier made her look like Kira Knightley in Pride and Prejudice. Mine made me look like an 18th century barmaid trying to smuggle a passel of puppies home to her kids. So we stood in the echoey gym bathroom in front of the mirrors, and I just felt a lot like my awkward 16-year-old self, but I didn't have that whole you've got the rest of your life in front of you thing going for me. But the rock show slash prom must go on, so I got up and I did my job singing and dancing and playing the shaker egg. Little known fact, Jimi Hendrix attempted to play the shaker egg, couldn't master it, so he switched to his fallback instrument, the guitar. A lot of people don't know that. So once we finished our set, people were still milling around and drinking, and I stepped outside to cool off, and a man came outside to smoke, and he nodded at me, and he was a heavy guy in his 40s with like a 70s porn mustache. He was wearing a trucker hat and a down vest and flannel. He wasn't the kind of person that you'd see at our shows. He, he was the kind of person you might see in the gummy worm aisle at the Flying J off I-84 at 5 a.m. <laughs> I, I wondered if he was lost. Good show, he said. I thanked him. And he smelled like whiskey. I think it's great what you're doing up there, just great. He was slurring his words. Oh, well, that's nice. Thank you, I replied. I mean, my sister kept saying, you know, who the hell does she think she is and whatnot. But I think it's just awesome that you get up there and you just, you know, you do it, you know, regardless. He slurred. Are you here with anyone? You want a drink? Let me buy you a drink. I was still trying to process what he meant, regardless of what. Who do I think I am, and why does his sister want to know? (laughs) I know I shouldn't ask, but I did. I'm not sure what you mean. Oh, you know, it's just, well, my sister's husky, too. So she was just saying that she'd never get up there and act like she was all farthing, quarth, and finkelmeyer yankin. The rest rest of his sentence turned to a kind of a jumbled mess, as my sister's husky too grew larger and larger like big dumb word balloons filling my brain and constricting my chest. I thought about the process he must have gone through to come up with just the right word, you know? Weight's a tough issue, so you have to choose exactly the right one. So so husky is where you landed, sir. Husky is the hill you want to die on. And you will die. His mouth was still moving, but all I could think of was what he'd meant the whole time. Not, hey, good show, but hey, good for you, fatty. Good for you for getting up there and attempting to do something in front of people just like a normal lady. My sister finds you disgusting and sad, but me, well, I like it. I like it so much that in my own creepy backwards-ass way, I might even be trying to pick you up. How effed up is that? Very! Okay, well, I have to go back inside, and my voice was shaking a little bit at that point. Hey, you know, I think big girls are lucky, you know? You really know for sure that men like you for what's on the inside. Pretty girls never know, you know? Holy balls. (laughs) 
So on that note, I just ditched all pretense of etiquette and I ran faster than I have ever run in a gym to get to the bathroom passing Marie, who knew immediately that something was up, and she followed me in. And when we walked in, the bathroom was just filled with all of the revelers that we'd just been performing for. And I stood in the middle of them, and I sobbed. I have no idea how much I was able to impart to Marie or how much she understood, but I do remember yelling over and over again as the porcelain tiles echoed back to me, My sister's husky, too? My sister's husky, too? His statement had turned into a question I was asking the universe. (laughs) It was the kind of sentence someone who never speaks to other humans might say. He was ridiculous and awkward and tragic in his own way, but that didn't matter because everything he'd just said to me, I'd already said to myself. He had just taken his stubby hand and he'd reached back for that dark goo in the back of my brain, you know, the goo that holds every terrible thing that we think about ourselves, and he just slathered it all over me when I least expected it. And it sent me onto the floor of a gym bathroom, ruining my best friend's New Year's Eve and my really cute tool skirt. And when I remember the story, I picture an alternate version of myself that hears what he has to say and laughs and says something droll like, well, I find it inspiring that someone with your grasp of human nature and fashion sense has the courage to leave the house at all (laughs) and walks off completely unscathed. But I wasn't. I was scathed. I was totally scathed. But he was too. He was a big guy. And obviously his sister was somewhat large and in charge herself. And there they were, sitting in their nasty little pools of self-hatred, shocked that I had been able to climb out of mine to get on stage. If they had only asked me, I would have clued them into my secret. I still have a little pool of my own. I've just customized it so it's portable enough to bring on stage with me. (laughs) The sloshing is a little distracting, but otherwise, it's an engineering miracle. So I didn't get the satisfaction of a pithy retort. My only revenge is that I've continued to go on stage almost every week since then, and despite my clear handicap, I just, as he put it, do it regardless. Regardless of my puppy-smuggling bustier, regardless of the broken 16-year-old that's still in there taking up space, and regardless of the fact that I know jackasses like him are everywhere. Oh, your sister's husky too? Well, point her out, because I think I can take her. Our musical guest tonight is a band out of Anacortes, Washington, whose first record, We Sing the Body Electric, accomplished a lot. It made a huge splash with critics while referencing both a Walt Whitman poem and a song from the movie Fame. Death Cab for Cuties' Chris Waller heard the record and signed them to his label Trans in 2010. He also produced their latest record, Arrows. Here with songs from that album, please welcome The Lonely Forest to Livewire. Welcome to art and soul, miserable excuse to tell the world of all the pain I've caused. Hope you don't forget these songs. And though I'm young, life's been short, I'm only 21. I feel as if we can relate on some of these words I've written down. 
Welcome to the show. This is John Van Dusen, the lead singer and songwriter for The Lonely Forest. So I had this uh, struggle as I'm listening to, to that song because um, I wanted to follow your instructions, but I was enjoying the song, and I didn't want to turn it off. Yeah. And I also uh, don't like bugs, so going outside is really, ugh, you know? There's bugs inside too, though, you know? That's true, that's true. But what was the, what was the impetus for you to write that song? Uh, I was in Atlanta with my dad visiting my grandpa, who wasn't very mobile, and I don't know, it was kind of a bummer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wanted to write a song about going outside. There are two songs on the record, The Love Skeptic and The Love Addict, right. and they're right next to each other on the record. Why did you feel like you wanted to do that? Uh, I don't know, because I'm kind of an idealist, and I had a friend who's kind of a skeptic, and we argued, so mm -hmm. I, wrote, I tried to write a song from each of our perspectives. 
Well, I noticed that you put the love addict second, so right. you got the last word on the record. Yeah, but you know, idealists... Actually, no, that's not... I was going to say idealists usually get the last word. It's not true at all. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Skeptics get the last word when the bad happens. Right. And they're like, see, I told you. Bad happens all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, this is a New Year's Eve show. What would you say that your bandmates would hope that your resolution is? I mean, besides, like, not puking in the van anymore <laughs> and uh, being nicer. That's probably, I mean, it, I, it, yeah. it gets, it gets, it's rough when you're in a van, a, a little van with four dudes and, or five. And Absolutely. Just, yeah, so, but I think that's probably it, maybe. Listening, yeah. listening more. Okay, just, they just don't <laughs> yeah. want me to puke in the van anymore. <laughs> well... Uh, you're going to come back later and you're going to sing one more song from Arrows. That was amazing, and we look forward to your next song. Thank you. Thanks so much. The Lonely Forest, everybody. <laughs> Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the Bread of the Week, Spelt. What's Spelt? Well, it's 100% whole grain, and according to our friend the internet, it dates back to the Bronze Age and is a good alternative to wheat. For 5,000 years, it's been the little grain that could. Dave's Killer Bread, just say no to bread on drugs. We'll be right back. Last week, 35-year-old insurance actuary David Bancroft was asked if he could have dinner with three people from history, who would they be? And what can only be described as a New Year's miracle, his wish was granted. David actually got to have dinner with Jesus of Nazareth, Sigmund Freud, and Dorothy Parker. You know, I've never made a New Year's resolution before, but you guys are all my heroes, and I really want to fashion my life after your lives, so, you know, the timing of this couldn't be more perfect. It's just still really hard to believe you're all here. Why is this difficult to believe? I am before you, and I'm in the flesh. I know, Dr. Freud, but I just have so much to learn from you all, and you're all together in my favorite restaurant. My son, I always say, judge not, lest ye be judged, but Red Robin is your favorite restaurant? Yeah, yeah, yes. Huh, okay. Okay, folks, here are your drinks. Jesus, here's your triple red zombie. <laughs> zombie, that is appropriate. What? 
Nothing, nothing. Uh, Dr. Freud, a Korean torpedo. And um, who had the bucket with three shots of everything from behind the bar? Right here. Call me Dorothy. You've got spunk. I do? Oh, great. Um, well, are you all ready to order? Yes, I would enjoy the Southwestern Blazing Buffalo Wrap. And uh, it indicates here that the lettuce is crisp. And if it is not crisp, uh, I will send it back with extreme prejudice. Uh, let's see, Barb, I don't see any vegan options here. Uh, why don't you just make something appear? Huh? Can't you do magic? Aren't you the man who came back from the dead? Is hell not hot enough for you, Freud? <laughs> Keep it up, buddy. Uh, Barb, I'll just get a basket of the, uh, I'll just get the bottomless fries. Okay, all right, I'll be right back in a jiff. Uh, David, tell me, what are bottomless fries? Uh, it means that they will be refilled as long as you're here. Oh, you know, I did something similar once with loaves and fishes. Oh, please. A... You use sleight of hand in some sort of form of mass hypnosis. Pump your brakes, Freudy. I'm getting pissed over here, okay? I'm so frightened of your magic spells and your stinky sandals. Okay, you know, guys, just come on. This bucket isn't as big as I thought. Hey, toots, bring me another. Oh, David, why'd you bring us to this junked-up jute joint? Uh, well, my mom used to bring me here growing up, and I just really have always here liked it. Here we go. What? Didn't take too long. Not at all. What didn't? Would you like to tell us about your mother? I... N- n- no, I... Uh, what? Yes, yes, you're in love with your mother. Tell me, David, when you dream, do you hurt the little animals? Okay, enough with the pseudo-science, Freud. Oh, you please. shut your damn mouth, you daddy's boy. Look, I love my mother very much, okay? We know. We know. Oh, you do. Okay, hey, you know, get off my back, all right? You know, this is not going the way I thought it would. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a pretty good buzz on. <laughs> it's about time. I like your crowd face. You know, I prayed that this meal would be fun and enlightening. And I... Yeah, you know, David, I always answer your prayers. I do. It's just most of the time the answer's no. <laughs> and BT dubs, you guys, these fries are to die for. Mm. Well, mm. in a way, you did die for them. I mean... Aren't you glad you sacrificed so much so the world could have deep-fried Snickers and cheesy cheddar chicken strips? All right, that's it, Freddy. You're going down, buddy. Big time. Let go of my beard. Let go of my beard first. Toots, another round of buckets and Korean what's it? It's time for dinner and a show. Dorothy, don't just sit there. Help me break this up. Ow, Freud. Break it up? I got 20 bucks on the Lord and Savior. You are all terrible people. I can learn nothing from you. I'm, you know what? I'm leaving. Oh, don't forget to pay for my hooch, Oedipus Rex. All right. Oh, come on. What is it? I think Jesus stole my wallet. That was Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Jason Rouse with sound effects by David Ian. Next on the show is a poet who came out of the gate rather successfully. His debut collection, Curses and Wishes, was chosen for the 2010 Walt Whitman Award. He's also received an Oregon Literary Fellowship from Literary Arts, and his poems have been featured in the American Poetry Review, the Harvard Review, and American Poet. With some previous work, as well as a brand new poem on the occasion of the new year, please welcome Carl Adamschick to Livewire. This is excellent. Just gonna read the. Uh, it's the first poem in the book. Even though, even though he regretted sleeping with him, 
you didn't regret sleeping with him. Even though you loved him, you didn't love him. You were trying, even though you knew you weren't trying. You could see another world in this world, even though you knew there was only one world. The street is doing that thing to the moon I like. Birds have taken their paths through the trees. May happiness be a wheel, a lit throne spinning in the vast pinprick of darkness. We forget almost everything, even though we believe we live to remember. Oblivion and significance brush our bones, leave us weeping for strangers. May your secrets remain hidden in that beautiful place covered in suffering. I see loneliness as a shell of mottled smoke in a high nest of metal shavings, a cold autumn day without wind, the sun unfolding an ancient map on parched ground we can't read, even though our language comes from the earth. I felt the deep bruise of a sentence and wanted to eat at the banquet of silence. May betrayal be a way home, the coming back a burden of joy. A general ununderstanding has left me both open and closed, overwhelmed by the magnitude of the world's choices, but also at ease, floating on the light wave of its being. May the defilement of hope be a coronation. May you wear the crown of exile. May you forget what you hold dear. Life is and cannot be a failure. Hatred sleeps in the white, blooming lilac branch of the skull. I live in my mother's maiden name. I was taken in as an ocean takes in daylight. Mourn if you must mourn. Feel loss as the only profound thing we share, even though you believe each of us is alone forever in an endless field of carbon. May the dice have no eyes, and may you keep throwing them on the table's green velvet. May you have night with its dark branches every night. Thanks. So, about talking. If we had visitors from the future come to hear what we had to say, I'm assuming the last thing I said would be the first thing they heard, the first sound to enter into their soft bodies of glass. And if they kept burrowing through time, that they would hear my first word last, then watch as I squeeze myself into a ball and give birth to my mother. And uh, this next poem I wrote for the turning of the year, and I'd just like to say I'm, I'm glad we're all here because it's not, it's not always going to be that way. <laughs> I know, right? It's a, a map to now. I didn't know a woman could vanish within herself. Didn't know fear would then be her master. I didn't see the sun under the lindens of November 
or the moon riding a wet black horse. I thought my body was mine until it became a window, a map anyone could use. I didn't see the red lights of the radio tower or the city park laded with fog. The year had slipped out of most of its clothes and midnight was in formal attire. Everyone swayed, held in the music, assured the turning of the year was an entrance into an afterlife of unlimited sunshine. We lived. I tried to explain the sound within our dreaming, not as the ocean, but street names. Thank you so much. Carl Adamschick. Happy New Year. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, too. God, I haven't seen you since uh, Mike, Mike McAvoy's, Mike McAvoy's bachelor, bachelor party. party. Of course. That's right. you got a great memory. Well, that was the night that you lit the Burger King on fire. Oh, so. my God. That's right. I totally forgot about that. Uh, you know, those are crazy times. Crazy. Hey! Remember when uh, Steve Platt and I slept on that manhole cover in the veil? Hey, oh. hey, you. Um, are you talking to me? Can I ask you a question? Sure. I think I know you. Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know Chad or Trampus? Who? Chad or Trampus. I think she's saying Trampus. Yes! Trampus! Chad or Trampus. No, I don't know Chad or Trampus. Uh, what about Pip Trinket? No. Are you sure? Pretty sure. Uh, how about, do you know Augustus Thunt? No. Or Mark Thunt or China Thunt or Hieronymus Spreckle? No, I don't. See, this is why I hate these parties. I know. Tell me about it. Oh, people, I know. I met you at Tangerine Florida's divorce party. I don't know that person. Yeah, right. You're telling me you're at this party and you don't know Trampus, Pip Trinken, Augustus, Mark, or China Thunt, Hieronymus Spreckle, Tangerine Florgan, or Chad. I think you're lying. Uh, actually, I'm not lying and I think you're a ridiculous person. How? Simon Livingston James. That's not a real person. Bartleby so. Frontbutt. God, your breath is awful. America Ferrara. Ugly Betty? Ugly who? Uh, never mind. Chad! I don't know Chad. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, are you okay? Are you going to throw up or... Lollabubble falafel. Those aren't words. <laughs> Brian, come on. Let's just go, man. Come on. Okay, look. Up. I'm sorry. I got to go. Hey, this wait, is wait, not... wait, wait, wait. Okay, one more. Okay. Scott Stringer. What? Seriously? Yeah. Well, I, I do know him. That's him. That's, this is him. You're Scott Stringer? Yeah, that's me. Finally, Scott Stringer, you're hereby served. What? You're being sued by your ex-wife for back alimony, and if you see any of those other deadbeats I mentioned, please let them know that I'm looking for them, too. <laughs> Man, she was, a, she was a good actress. I thought she was really drunk. Uh, I don't think she was acting. She's currently trying to open her car door with her lipstick. That was Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, with David Ian on sound effects. 
Our next guest is an Emmy Award-winning television writer who's written for shows like David Letterman, Newhart, and Sex and the City. She's been on talk radio, she's been a television correspondent, but more recently she's been a novelist and memoir writer with books like What the Dogs Have Taught Me, It's My Effing Birthday, and Nose Down, Eyes Up. Her most recent book is Cool, Calm, and Contentious. It's a book of essays with musings about her mother's particularly dark outlook on life, dog whisperers, and great tips on how to spot a narcissist with which she's apparently had a great deal of experience. Please welcome the hilarious Meryl Marco to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Meryl. Before you say another word, I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed that story about, about getting called a husky. I oh, thought thank that was you. unbelievably well written. <laughs> oh, thank you. Wow. <laughs> that, yeah, that means I can't tell you what that means coming from you. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a great pleasure to, to be here. Yeah, it's really wonderful to have you here. Um, I wanted to start off a little bit with your history, because I'm not sure that everybody knows uh, where you started. And you've worked on some amazing television shows over the years. Um, early on, you worked on a revamp of Laughing. Uh, you you worked on you helped start David Letterman with David Letterman. Not necessarily not the, the David. News. No, I didn't actually start David Letterman. It was his show that I worked on. <laughs> it was really... You didn't actually give birth to David no. Letterman. <laughs> Thank God. That would have been incredibly creepy. <laughs> incredibly creepy. Um, but which one of those early television jobs, you were the head writer for David Letterman, really made you a writer? Uh, well, I would have to say that what really made me a writer was leaving television. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would say that that really is, if you, in fact you want to be a writer, television isn't really your place. It's... Uh, well, it's not really a writing medium. I mean, there are some well-written shows, but it's a really, it's an extremely collaborative medium. I didn't really ever hear my own voice very clearly until I started writing print. That's really where, or, or you know, doing stand-up is another way that you hear your own voice really clearly. But television, it's you, often me or someone at a table with 19 people. And everybody kind of throwing things in. And sometimes there are power struggles. And sometimes sure. there are um, vendettas that people have against each other and reasons people don't want something in. And it's really possible in television to have your name on something and have nothing in it by you. Right. Right. Because you were just in the room. Yeah. 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 Well, and you, you actually mentioned in uh, Mike Sachs' book, Here's the Kicker, you talked about actually figuring out what your voice was after you left television. How did you find your voice? People started hiring me, well, because the voice on The Letterman Show, which was, had something to do with me, it, it was, I focused it, and I contributed a lot to it, but that voice was so clear that people started offering me jobs writing my voice, and then that really was clarifying for me, because I could be very specific about what that meant, you know, you yeah. could, you can take your time, and you can go through a thesaurus, and you can dress it up, and, you know, you, you've got that, that kind of deadline when you're working for television, where, um... It's, it's coming up and it's going to be on no matter what you do. So that kind of chaos creates a certain dynamic all its own. It's really, it's about crafting it as well as you can based on a really specific, really um, ever ticking time bomb. Right. Sort of. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't get finished. It just goes on the air. 
Yeah, that well, kind of yeah. idea. And, it, and it's as good as you can make it. And then sometimes, I mean, one of the things we did on that old Letterman show that I thought was very smart and appropriate in that way was that we just built into the way we were writing them that, well, what do you want? There's no budget. So you can, um, you know, you really can only make it just as good as you can make it. I right. Mean, which is, was part of the attitude of the show, and that was something that helped. You know, that's, and on the, on the other hand, that's the kind of thing that really makes you crazy when you're writing a book is if you have all the time in the world. So if it doesn't come out very good, you can really just, <laughs> just blame yourself. Is it, was it hard for you once you started writing books to not hear the laughs? Uh, it gets very confusing. It's really, really confusing. <laughs> it's very hard. I do a ton of rewriting and it's very hard to know the difference between rewriting the right amount and just OCD where right. you're just rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. You just don't know whether or not you're making it better or you've gone past the point of better. Just, you're just repeating it in some other way. It's very right. Con- yeah. Writers talk about lateral changes. I'm yeah, making I mean, a change, but it's not, it's not better. It's just different. Yeah, well, there's only just so many changes you can make. I've found that. And sometimes I actually have one book that I, by the time I decided to just stop rewriting it, I had put it back to the first draft. Wow. Pretty much. I mean, it was, there's just only so many ways you can say the thing. You know, sure. you're only one person. Sure. Well, um, I wanted to talk about this book, of course, Cool, Calm, and Contentious. And um, your mother actually passed away 20 years ago, but yeah. she's, she plays such a big role in this book. Why did you feel like you wanted to, to write about her now? Uh, I had never written about her, and I felt kind of guilty about it. And uh, and then I realized I, I think the role of a writer is maybe to tell people what it was like on planet Earth for you and the particulars of your life. And so she had a huge effect on who I was. And also there was another reason. After she died, uh, this is this is very weird, but uh, I found a little stack of her diaries. And my mother was an extremely angry person. In fact, the, um, the way I usually describe her is the first time I showed her something that I'd written, her remark was, I don't happen to care for it, but I pray I'm wrong. <laughs> she just was not, a, she was this very negative, non-supportive person. And I was always wondering why she was angry, and I really couldn't... Um, I couldn't put my finger on it because she wouldn't explain it. You know, she wasn't an introspective kind of person. So... Uh, she just, she just was a never-ending compendium of negative remarks. On my 30th birthday, she made a toast to me that was, may half of all your dreams come true. <laughs> did you ask her what she meant by that? I did. I, well, I actually went, Mom, isn't that sort of sad? And she said, no, it's a good percentage. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, And I didn't know, by the way, when she was saying these things to me that they were funny until I started doing stand-up and started saying them in front of people. They were just devastating. Right, right. (laughs) So when she died, I saw these diaries and I thought, oh, well, this is going to be one of those really big, amazing moments for me. I'm going to go through those diaries. I'm going to read them. I'm going to find out what she felt about my dad, what she felt about me, what she was so angry about, you know, and... uh, And what I found instead were these incredibly negative, critical travel diaries where all the countries of the world were disappointing my mother. (laughs) (laughs) She called the French countryside singularly uninteresting. (laughs) And when she visited Dublin, she had a line that I liked that I forgot to put in the book, which was, I was not crazy about Dublin. It it did not enchant me. The world was just letting my mom down everywhere she went. 
Yeah, if entire countries were letting her down, you had no chance. Yeah, well, that's what I came to realize is, you know, what I, here I am thinking that I'm going to please this woman. And she went to St. Mark's Square in Venice and she said, in terrible taste. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to please this woman my whole life. Of course, the other last thing was I found this, this thing... Um, uh, it was one of her college textbooks. It was called a Dickens Reader. And on, in the second chapter, I noticed she had written in um, margin of Oliver Twist. Not one of his best works. I was not <laughs> impressed. <laughs> so, like, Dickens letting my mother down. Right. And I think she's going to like my work. What's wrong with me? It was Probably an eye-opener for me. Well, yeah, yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Livewire, and we're talking to Meryl Marco about her book, Cool, Calm, and Contentious. In the book, you sort of state, oh, I finally realized it. My mother was a narcissist. Yeah, I, yeah she was. I mean, it was because I went into therapy, and there was a, a label for people with this personality. Narcissism is a whole syndrome, a whole slate of personality traits that can be best reduced to, I'm the piece of the world revolves around. <laughs> Wow, that's so accurate. That's so accurate. Well, so you also make a point uh, that that really some of these narcissistic mothers or difficult mothers really uh, sort of create comedians. Yeah, that was what I realized is I have a lot of comedian friends and a lot of comedy writer friends. And because we always talked about our backgrounds and stuff, uh, it occurred to me that that the lion's share of, of people in comedy have the same mother. These women are, it's like being raised, like, raised by a heckler, is basically <laughs> what it is. <laughs> they create just the right amount of emotional uh, personality damage to give you the drive to want to get on stage and entertain drunks. Well, <laughs> so. well do you feel like, I mean, you are, a, you're a writer, you're a funny person. Do you feel like in some way that you owe that to her? I mean, are you grateful well, or was it worth it? I guess that would be what I'm, I'm grateful for. Yeah, I guess that would be it. Yeah, she taught me all about narcissism. I mean, I'm sorry that she, I could never get along with her in the entire time that she was my mother. That kind of made me sad at the time. But, you know, I'm glad I at least learned something from it. You know, that... Do you, th- do you feel like your sense of humor came as a way to, to deal with her away from her? Or did you somehow use humor to actually diffuse situations with her? How do you feel like your humor came about? She didn't have a sense about? of humor. <laughs> I felt like, a, I mean, to me, no, she wouldn't, she wouldn't like if I joked. It would be like, ha, 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 is everything a joke with you? That would be the, the response. Go, well, yeah, as it turns out, yeah, it is. It's basically <laughs> all a joke with me. And right. Humor, like, that's the thing I loved about humor is that she... These, these kind of mothers put you in untenable situations where your only escape is to take all the pieces they've given you, which are manifestly unfunny, and then reconfigure them so that somehow in your world, by the time you recite them as an anecdote, they have a punchline, yeah. which is like a fantastic gift. It always reminded me of sort of, you know, those old Bugs Bunny cartoons where he's being chased by somebody and then he paints a tunnel on the wall and then just runs into it. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of. It's so you used <laughs> humor to paint your escape tunnel, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I actually read um, your sort of list of comedy pet peeves, and it was really long. Um, <laughs> do you feel well, like you have asked a... me to write it, and I yeah. can... Yeah, that's the thing about writing versus, you know, writing for TV. You can sit, you go, and I got another one. When you're... Like, Here's another thing that bothers me. Do you feel like you have a love-hate relationship with comedy? No, I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, but, I, but I love it so much that I, I, I'm... 
I got this from my mother. I'm incredibly critical of it. You know, I'm listening for, oh, no, they should have picked a different word. (laughs) (laughs) So do you feel like after writing this book that that you look at your relationship with your mom a little differently now? I think I see it very clearly. I'm sorry that it, I mean, it seems sort of sad that I never had the kind of mother-daughter relationship that I hear other people talking about. But then I didn't really have the kind of anything else I hear everybody talking about. I don't even know what planet everyone else is from. <laughs> as far as I can tell, I live all on my own planet. So right, with a lot of dogs. With an awful lot of dogs. Yeah. who are also from another planet. Exactly. To me, they are just exchange students from Neptune. <laughs> yeah. I like that they, I, lo- I like looking at them and realizing they're sharing the furniture with me and they're sharing the room, but I have no idea what they think is going on. <laughs> just... <laughs> They have no idea what I do for a living. They've known me their whole lives. Well, the book is cool, calm, and contentious. The writer is Meryl Marco. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Livewire is brought to you in part tonight by Whole Foods Market, who remind you that there are over 17 million kids in the U.S. at risk of hunger this year. So they're joining Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign, donating a portion of gift card purchases and matching customer donations up to $25,000. Whole Foods Market, hoping to make it a healthy, happy holiday for everyone. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be right back. And now it's time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on the prompt, My New Year's Resolutions. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks and will now read them with the help of fill-in music director and recovering philatelist Jim Brunberg. And now, Flash Fiction. Alex writes, Massage My Wife. She wrote this. (laughs) Peggy writes, I resolve to never resolve again. 
Monica D writes, stop putting a bird on it. <laughs> Rachel wrote, admit baconase will lessen my days. Mara writes, fix up the boat, sail away. Little Stella Ray writes, ride a unicorn over a rainbow. Great job, audience, on tonight's Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by the new Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their Snow Day Winter Ale, brewed with the new Midnight Wheat Hops and featuring a creamy tan head that's probably wearing a jaunty toque, because it's cold in there. Enjoy the unexpected with Snow Day by New Belgium Brewing Company. Thanks, New Belgium. Now, once again, please welcome the Lonely Forest.
lonely forest. And now, as promised, the man who has been writing this entire hour while we've been hanging out on stage and while people at home have just been drinking champagne and waiting to ring in the new year, here to sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. My New Year's resolution is to do the opposite of what I don't want to do, like eat more bacon. So when I break it, I'll be right where I want to be. That is, unless there suddenly becomes an end to bacon, and then my New Year's resolution will have to be to bring back bacon so I can eat more of it. But then I'll have to find DNA from somewhere, even if it has to come from some bacon bit jammed in the back of some nasty trucker's mouth so that I can replicate the pig through the extensive years of lab work, thus bringing bacon back to a morning world. That is unless I was horribly misinformed and there actually was plenty of bacon the whole time I was bringing back pigs. I was actually just doubling the amount of bacon. Then my resolution is to never make a resolution to reduce the amount of any animal. That is unless not reducing the amount of any animal means that I can't off-road through a lonely forest at night as fast as you can go in a lonely forest at night, your headlights rifling through the bushes like a panicked drunk because I might hit an animal like a pig and thus reduce its amount. That is unless I can be invited to a dinner with Freud, Jesus, and Dorothy Parker and bacon... Instead, and I could sit back and watch them argue across the centuries at each other, pulling on either end of an assumption we rely on, like two people pulling at a baguette from two opposing speeding cabs on a French street. Then my resolution is to get invited to more dinners where they serve things covered in bacon, and Meryl Marco is not there telling jokes, and Carl Adamschick is not there reading his poems like a wet black horse moving quietly through a city park laden with fog. So when I break that resolution... I will be eating bacon and Meryl Marco and Carl Adam Schick will be there and one of them will say and we will all toast to may half of all your resolutions come true. (laughs) Happy New Year! Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Happy New Year. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Carl Adamschick, Meryl Marco, and The Lonely Forest. The Mutton Chops are Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Steve Berlin. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville. Introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, house poet Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Faces for Radio Theater is directed by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Graham Nystrom. 
thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Trele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. And from all of us at Livewire, we thank you for listening in 2011 and wish you a healthy, happy 2012. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.